Our message this morning is entitled, The Poor Have the Gospel. The Poor Have the Gospel. Our thoughts today are the last in a series of messages that we've undertaken here today. Coming to the final miracle in the list of signs that Jesus gave to disciples of John the Baptist as they came to him in Matthew chapter 11 and asked him the question, Are thou he that should come, or do we look for another? We'll read that passage together once again today. Matthew 11, beginning in verse 1, And it came to pass, when Jesus had made an end of commanding his twelve disciples, he departed thence to teach and to preach in their cities. Now when John had heard in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said unto him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said unto them, Go and show John again those things which ye do see and hear. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, and the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and lastly, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. In other words, whether the intent was to strengthen John's faith or to point those disciples of John to Jesus, blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. We're called upon to not be ashamed of him. We're called upon to testify of him even in the face of opposition and adversaries, those who would oppose him in the world. Now, this is the final of the miracles that Jesus presented, which is interesting because in some ways it is distinct from the other acts that Jesus reported to the disciples of John the Baptist. Look at this list again, verse 5. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached unto them. One, this particular miracle didn't affect anyone's physical being, per se. Notice the physical nature of all of these other miracles that Jesus lists here in Matthew eleven five. The blind received their sight. Someone who did not have functioning vision had their vision restored unto them. The lame walk, those who had injured legs, those who had spinal injuries, those who had Viruses such as polio that had affected their extremities. They could not walk. They were made to stand up and walk. The lepers are cleansed of disease. And as we studied that together, we noted that there were various causes of what they would consider leprosy. What we consider it today is very compartmentalized, but they considered many diverse afflictions of the skin to be leprosy. The lepers were cleansed. That is, again, a physical thing. The deaf here. Someone's physical hearing was restored unto them, and the dead are raised up, which was what we studied together last week. Every one of those things had to do with the physical bodies of those who received a miracle. And yet in this one, the poor have the gospel preached unto them. Another difference between this miracle and the other miracles that we've studied together is that this miracle is still very active in the world today. God sent these men, and you see this 
as he commanded the 12 disciples in chapter 11, verse 1, Jesus commissions these 12 men to go into the world and to perform miracles. We know that Judas was a traitor and betrayed Christ for 30 pieces of silver, went and hung himself. He hanged himself. He committed suicide. But these other 11 men in Mark chapter 16, which is very much the word of God, by the way, some modern critics would have you believe that the longer ending of Mark is not the word of God, but it has always been received as the word of God. And it is the word of God. Jesus commands these 11 men to go into the world and these signs shall follow them that believe. Mark 16, 17, in my name shall they cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. If they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. And those were the signs of an apostle. Jesus gave these men the same abilities that he had in the world in that he healed the sick, he raised the dead, he gave sight to the blind, he opened the ears of those that were deaf, he calls the lame to stand up and to run and to walk. One of the first miracles that Peter, James, and John did in the book of Acts chapter 3, they go into the temple and there's a man who was lame, who had sat outside the temple and begged every day. Everyone knew him, everyone passed him by. Sometimes they would give him money, sometimes they would ignore him the way it would be in our world today. And Peter, James, and John go to him. They say, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I unto thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up, walk. And the man stands up, the man leaps, the man runs. These apostles had the ability to heal the sick. There were times that even they raised the dead. You might remember that man, Eutychus, who fell out of the window as Paul preached until midnight. If you ever complain that my sermons are too long, no one has ever had to listen to my sermons until midnight. And at midnight, Eutychus falls from an upper place and he dies. And Paul raises him again from the dead. He falls asleep in Paul's preaching. He falls, he dies. Paul raises him again and Paul continues his speech until daylight. You couldn't escape even if you died from Paul's sermons. Paul raised Eutychus. He raised him. But as the apostles began to pass off the scene, as they began to die, as their ministries came to an end, that gift of the apostles, the signs of the apostles, tapered out of Christianity and disappeared from the church. That which is purported to be those same signs today are impersonations, and they're never real. You never see someone who's paralyzed stand up and begin walking when a preacher lays hands on him. What passes for tongues today is gibberish. Tongues in the Bible times was to speak in a language that you never learned. I know English. I know a few Greek words. I might know a couple of Hebrew words. I've looked up thousands. I might, re I might remember, I might know just a handful, but I can't speak that language. I can't speak Spanish. I can't speak German. Imagine if I began to speak German to a congregation of German people and I began to preach the word of God to them, never having learned German. You say, that's a miracle. That's exactly the point. And as the apostles passed off the scene, so did all of these miraculous gifts pass off the scene. They were given to the apostles. 
And so while God may bless a blind man to see either through providence in medicine or maybe even miraculously, God can perform miracles anytime God wants to perform miracles. While miracles might exist in the world from time to time, men performing miracles is something that ceased with the apostles. How is this last miracle distinct from the rest of these miracles? Number two, God is still sending men to preach the word of God to the poor today. Now you read every one of these, the blind receiving their sight, I cannot restore your vision. There's been several times in our congregation's history where some of you have gotten eye surgeries and we've been very thankful that God blessed in his providence and those eye surgeries were successful. How awesome would it be if I could simply lay hands on you and your vision be totally restored? Wouldn't that be amazing? But that gift has passed out of the church. It's no longer here. The lepers being cleansed, these preachers that are in the world, men such as myself, we can't just lay hands on a leper and the leprosy be healed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. These gifts have ceased from the church. These miracles have ceased as far as the performance of them by preachers. Certainly God can do whatever God wants. But as far as men doing this, these things have ceased to be. But the poor, having the gospel preached unto them, is the only one of these signs, these miracles, that has persisted from the time of Christ even until our very present day and age. In fact, in the book of Matthew chapter 28, as Jesus commissions his 11 disciples, the same thing that we just read from Mark 16, but as Jesus sends them out into the world here in Matthew's version of this, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. As long as the world stands, there will be men of God performing the miracle of preaching the gospel to God's children. Though all of these cease, the preaching of the cross will continue throughout this age. Just to follow a few thoughts of tangent here, what were the points of these signs? We'll go tell John again the things which you do see and hear. They testified to the reality of Christ as the Messiah. What were the passages that we read from Isaiah, for instance? Early on in this series together, Isaiah prophesies that the Messiah will come. He will heal the sick. He will raise the dead. He will make the mute to speak. He will open the eyes of the blind. They knew that those were works that the Messiah would do. He gives these gifts to his preachers that they can testify to the reality of Jesus as the Messiah when the church is grounded, when it is firmly established, when the canon is finished and the word of God is completed, the New Testament is completed, these sign gifts disappear with these authors, the apostles, and those under their direct influence, such as Luke and John Mark. And what remains is what? what it was all about to begin with, Christ as the Messiah. The gifts disappear because the 
point of church is not the gifts. The point of church is the Savior. We're here to worship Jesus, to preach Jesus, to love Jesus, to understand the work of Christ in our lives. If these miracles continued unto today, could you imagine the celebrity status of preachers? who would go out and perform these miracles. Could you imagine how much it would be about us instead of about Christ? And so all of these things begin to taper out of the church. And what remains is that the gospel is preached unto the poor. And so I find no coincidence that this appears last in our list of miracles. It is the one that endures even until today. The poor have the gospel preached unto them. In our message today, we want to look at, first of all, the nature of the miracle itself. Why is that a miracle? You said that sounds like something that happens every day. You can go and stand on a street corner and proclaim the word of God. How is it miraculous that the gospel is preached? To think that Jesus parallels the preaching of the gospel with the raising of a person from the dead. There it is in the list. Do we take preaching for granted sometimes? Would we take it for granted if a person was raised from the dead in front of us? No, we would be astounded, to use one of the words that Mark so often used in his gospel. Astonied was the 1611 word. Astonished. Minds blown. If you were blind and I laid hands on you or I rubbed my fingers on your eyes and rubbed clay into your eyes and all of a sudden you washed and you could see clearly, no one would take that for granted. Jesus parallels preaching with these other miracles that he lists. I hope that thought, I hope that thought is transformative to you, but I hope it's astonishing to you at the same time. Because if it clicks and the light bulb goes off, you'll see how important it is to be a part of the house of God. How important it is to gather every Sunday in worship. Preaching is a miracle. When preaching really occurs, a miracle has occurred. Secondly, we want to consider the nature of the poverty that Jesus speaks about here. What does it mean that the poor have the gospel preached unto them? What is communicated in that statement? Now, first of all, as we think about the nature of the miracle itself, the poor have the gospel preached unto them. It's clear that when Jesus says the poor have the gospel preached unto them, that implied here is that it's received this is preaching to the poor in a positive light. It isn't that the word is preached and people reject it, but there's a miracle. After all, when Jesus gave sight to the blind, it was effective, right? When he gave hearing to the deaf, it was effective. He performed the miracle. The miracle actually occurred. So more is conveyed here than simply someone having the words audibly preached unto them and it bounces off their head. And so implied here is the reception of the word. The word has been received. When the word is received, a miracle has occurred. When the word is received, 
A miracle has occurred. Keep that thought in mind. Preaching here is intended in a positive, receptive light. As we begin to develop this thought before you, we're going to share some scripture that you're very familiar with, scriptures that you know. But as Jesus said to the disciples of John, go tell John again, as Peter and as Paul both referred to in their writings, to write the same things to you indeed as for me not grievous, but for you it is safe, as Paul said to the Philippians. Peter wrote to stir up their minds by way of remembrance. It's good to hear truth reaffirmed. One of the greatest examples of this, and I didn't get this until college, the reason, young folks, the reason they make you do so many algebraic equations in math is not because they hate you, but because they want you to learn the equation. And how you learn the equation is by doing one example after another of a problem. And so when they send you home, and the first math class I took in college, they give you homework, and guess what they never do? They never grade it. They never ask for it. They never ask to see it. Why? Because if you don't do it, you'll just fail the test. And that's not really their problem. Their problem is to teach you, to do the example on the board, to tell you why things are. And if you don't get it, that's not their fault. That's not their problem. So they give you dozens and dozens and dozens of equations. In the first math class I took, I totally disregarded every bit of homework when I figured out that it was not mandatory that I do the homework. What do you think happened to me about halfway through that semester? I dropped the class because I was failing, because I didn't do the homework. We engage in repetition to learn. There are musical exercises that I do on the trumpet Every single day, you say, don't you know that by now? It's not about learning it. It's about being able to effectively, continually do that. And so some of these are familiar to you, but we learn and we maintain what we've learned through repetition. Concerning the inability of the natural man to receive the gospel, 1 Corinthians 2.14 but the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. As we approach this miracle of preaching today, the first thing that we need to understand is that if you and I can understand the gospel, it's because a miracle has already occurred in our lives that is tantamount to the raising of the dead. If we can believe in Christ through the gospel, if you can hear the word and the word causes you to hear of him, to rejoice in him, to embrace him, to even more love him for whom your heart burns through grace, then at some time in your life, a miracle has occurred. If you are a believer, if you know Jesus, if you love Jesus, you are the recipient of a miracle. Everybody wants a miracle. Everybody wants a miracle. Maybe I could refer back to the algebra example a minute ago. You know, we've got finals this week. How many of you young folks want a miracle? How many of you need a miracle? I can't tell you how many times I prayed for a test. God, just please let me get through this class. 
I took remedial math three times. Math 100 twice. I hate math. I've prayed for a miracle. We all want a miracle. How seldom do we fathom the fact that we are a miracle? You are a miracle. You've been brought to life by the immediate working of the Holy Spirit upon a sinner who was dead in trespasses and in sins. You are a miracle. I'm looking at a room full of miracles. You notice in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. What that means is the person as they are in Adam, the natural man. You have received two births if you know Christ. You were born of the flesh, which we all were because we are here. By here, I mean here on earth. You are alive because you have been born of your parents. That is an Adam birth. That is natural birth. But there is a spiritual, supernatural birth from above that is all of God, only of God, completely through God, and immediately by God. By that I mean no mediator, no one between God and you, exclusively performed by God himself upon the soul of a person who is dead in trespasses and in sins. The person who is merely the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. How do you go from natural man to spiritual man? How do you go from a man that is only Adam to a man that now has the nature of Christ? Well, how did you receive this nature of Adam? You were born. How then do you receive the nature of Christ? You were born! Not of flesh, not of blood, not of the will of, the, the will of man, but of God. John chapter 1. The new birth, born from above. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and in sins. Now there's a word that I want as we get to verse 3. You were quickened, but now you are, excuse me, you were dead, but now you are quickened. You were dead, but now you are alive. The word quickened means to be made alive. You were dead in trespasses and in sins, not a corporal death, but a death in a spiritual sense you hadn't spiritually died per se. That's not what's communicated there. But through the sin of Adam, every single one of us was conceived in sin, shapen in iniquity, death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. We were dead. And he has quickened us together, raised us up again, as it were, with Christ. Now, wherein in times past you walked according to the course of this world, that's life before Jesus. According to the prince of the power of the air, that's life before Christ. The spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, before we were born again, we served Satan. Now you might say, I was never a worshiper of him. Well, you might not have cognitively realized it. You might not have consciously realized it, but we all served that wicked one before we knew Christ. That was the influence of our lives. He's referred to as the God of this world in Paul's writings to the Corinthians with a little g. The little g God of this world. 
among whom also we all had our conversation, which means lifestyle and times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. The natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God because we were by what? By nature, the children of wrath, even as others. By nature. It was natural. It was our inclination. I talked last week about nature and how if you are hungry, it is because you are alive. And we drew some spiritual parallels from that. A baby is hungry because a baby is alive. And you don't even have to teach the baby to eat. You don't have to teach the baby to be hungry. I've seen this happen five times. The baby is born into the world and the baby begins to want to eat. We are hungry because we are alive. It is natural. We were by nature, before Christ, naturally the children of wrath even as others, by nature the children of wrath. And so, obviously, the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, their foolishness unto him. He has no desire, no care. The foolishness of preaching, Paul would call it in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Not that preaching is to be foolish, not that I'm to stand up here and stammer around and make a fool of myself. You don't have to make preaching look foolish to a natural man. You don't have to stand up here and, you know, forgive me, but stomp around and slobber and scream and yell and grunt and make a show of things for the preaching to be foolish to the unregenerate. You can calmly, gently proclaim the word to an unregenerate, and it is still as foolish as if you stammer around up here as some sort of sideshow. The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. It is foolish, not because of the manner in which it's conducted, because of the message and because of the Christ of the message. And because of their own nature. Not simply children of apathy. Not simply children of... uninterested, lukewarm rejection. The children of what? Wrath. Understand how serious this is. This is us by nature. The children of wrath, of anger. Paul describes us by nature without Christ in Titus as being filled with hate, hateful and hating one another. We are hatred personified embodied without Christ. That's all we are without Christ. And I love the but God statements in the word of God. Verse four, but God who is rich in mercy. Mercy is when you don't get what you deserve. For his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened, resurrected us together with Christ by grace, which is Mercy is when you don't get what you do deserve. Grace is when you get what you don't deserve. By grace ye are saved. And hath raised us up together and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness 
toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. This is not something that you produced in yourself. It is the gift of God. It is given to you by grace, not of works, lest any man should boast. I remember hearing a sermon by Elder Lonnie Mazingo Jr. when I was still in college. And you know, if Brother Lonnie gets on this subject, it's going to be a good sermon. And he started just preaching on the fact that when we get to glory, no one is going to be walking around bragging about how they're in glory because of something that they did. Not of works, lest any man should what? Boast. If we would go to heaven, if we were going to go to heaven because of what we have done in our lives, then you would have reason to boast. And this is not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. We are his workmanship. Or to put it in our language today, you are miracles. You are a miracle. You are his workmanship. The natural man, then, because he is dead in sin, because he is by nature a child of wrath, the natural man, you and I, without Christ, will not receive the preached gospel. Understand how miraculous it is that you believe. So how is it that we are enabled to receive the word? What must happen? Well, Paul referenced this several times in these 10 verses from Ephesians chapter 2 that we just read. First of all, and you hath he quickened. To be quickened means to be raised to life. Verse 5, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us again together with Christ. Verse 6, hath raised us up together. To raise up refers to resurrection. We have been resurrected in a spiritual sense. We have been raised from the dead, the death of trespasses and sins. Or to put it in a more concise way, as Paul would in the previous chapter, Ephesians 1.19, what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places? We believe because Christ has resurrected our dead souls the same way that he raised Jesus from the dead when Jesus was in the tomb after the crucifixion. In other words, resurrecting power enables belief. We talked about this last week as we read through some passages from John chapter 5 as we learned about Jesus raising the dead and how when he raised the dead, the young damsel, Jairus' daughter, or Lazarus, that there were spiritual shadings to that, takeaways, if you will, that we can apply even to our own experience with Christ. John 5, 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. You were passed from death unto life by the quickening of the Lord Jesus Christ. He raised you when you were dead in trespasses and in sins through the sending of the Holy Spirit into your heart, crying, Abba, Father. 
And that is why you hear. That is why you believe. Because you have everlasting life. Because you have passed from death unto life. You're a miracle. And so, as we consider this from the perspective of it being a miracle, understanding the inability of humans, of human beings, to receive the gospel without the work of the Holy Spirit in their heart, it's obvious how it is a miracle when you believe. But let's develop this further. While it's true that God has to miraculously raise the dead soul of a person for them to be able to hear, to receive, to believe the word, God must bless the preacher and God must bless the hearer every single time the gospel is preached. If the Lord blesses us today to preach the word, if the word is preached to you, if I am enabled to share it in a way that communicates with you on a spiritual level, not merely your ears hearing it and your mind understanding the facts of the matter, but if it touches you in your heart, then a miracle has occurred through the Holy Spirit. What does it look like when... The Lord touches you in your heart. What does it look like? Well, if I'm preaching on a message of sin, and I talk about a sin, and I don't know anything about what you're struggling with in your life, but if we get to that issue and it's your issue, and you know when it's your issue, if no one else in this room but you and the Lord knows, you and the Lord know. When I come to your issue and you are convicted, that's a miracle. That was God communicating by way of his word to you. If you are struggling with your own sinfulness and guilt and remorse, and I preach a message or any preacher preaches a message of encouragement and the weight of sin on your shoulders begins to be lifted up and you no longer feel condemned because of what you've done, if you're no longer convicted, but you are encouraged and you are assured then a miracle has taken place. Now, why do I give both of those? Because it's not always the positive and it's not always the negative. There might be some people who are convicted in one message and across the room, someone else who is encouraged. That's how this works. Because though the same words are spoken unto everyone in the room, God is speaking individually to the hearts of every one of his children. There might be something that you glean from a message that no one else does. There might be an encouragement that you receive that no one else does. There may be a conviction that you receive that no one else does. There might be an answer that you receive that you were asking, something that you wrestled with that no one else there had thought about. It's miraculous. A passage that I believe summarizes... Both ends of this in First Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 5. For our gospel came not unto you in word only. There have been a lot of times when I've tried to get up before God's people and the word comes in word only. The message comes in word only. 
It is a miserable thing to try to preach. It is an invigorating thing to preach. It is an easy thing to preach. When God is there, preaching is easy. There have been meetings that I swear, it feels like you can pick up the newspaper and the newspaper would preach because God is so evident in the room. And we ought to be praying to God as we go into a new year that God would bless 2020 as such a year at Flint River Primitive Baptist Church. But there are times when the outline is perfect, the mind that you have is leading up to the message is sharp and articulate, and you've preached the sermon three times in your office, and it, it was so encouraging to you alone when you preached it, and you stand up, and God is not there, and it is an hour of torture. You think about it. Just, just put it from this perspective. Let's say the preacher has done his work, but the congregation has not prepared a lick to be in church. Nobody's prayed. Nobody cares. You know, everybody gets there when they get there and kind of sit down and they're thinking about the things they've got to do when they get out of there, the things they did last night. Nobody's really pressing into the kingdom. Nobody's really pursuing Christ. It's just kind of something we do because we do it. And the man stands up there and tries to share the word of God and it's like swimming in peanut butter. You can see he begins to sweat on his brow and all of a sudden the jacket becomes really hot. Maybe I need to take this thing off and what's the air set to anyway? That's not up here for that reason. That was the only guy, the only way the electrician could get the thermostat through the wall. But I do think it's kind of funny that it's right behind me. Somebody asked that on a live stream. Why is the thermostat behind the preacher so I can guard it with my life? <laughs> Until it was there, people would change it two or three times a sermon. Get up and change it. Get up and change it. I can't change it now. You see me looking at it. Is it really only 68 degrees in here? I'm burning up. Or what about when the preacher doesn't do his job all week and he stands up before God's people and he attempts to wing it? You think God's going to bless that? Well, sometimes he does. And when he does, it's purely by his grace because he loves his people and he wants them to hear a sermon. This could be a very difficult thing to do. Or it can be the easiest thing that a man's ever tried. And the difference is the Holy Spirit is either there or not. When the Holy Spirit is there and the Word comes with power, what an awesome, what an awesome experience it is for the hearers. Amen? Again, he parallels it with even the raising of the dead, the giving sight to the blind, opening the ears of the deaf, cleansing the leprosy, and to maybe put a spiritual context, spiritual application to that, in a spiritual sense... All of those things have to happen to us before we receive the word, don't they? All of those things have to happen. God has to open our spiritual eyes, our spiritual ears. Our spiritual lameness is taken away. Our spiritual leprosy of sin is taken away, is cleansed. And we are raised in a spiritual sense from the dead. And then can that gospel message come to us in power? Our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. Preaching assures the hearts of God's children. The point of me preaching to you is your assurance. I can't get you to heaven, but I want you to be as sure as you can possibly be that that's where you're going to go. 
And what does that mean? Does that mean that I think I can get you to do something in order to establish it as a firm fact? No. But in your heart, in your conscience, I want you to be totally, completely sure that when you depart this life, the next face you're going to see is that of your smiling Savior. I want you to be assured of your salvation. That's what assurance is. Make your calling and election sure to you in your mind, in your heart, in your conscience. Preaching came in much assurance, and you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. Preaching is a miracle. If God has opened your ears, a miracle has happened. Every time God blesses the preacher to spiritually connect with the congregation, a miracle has happened. Now, the next thing that we want to look at today, and I know that we only have about 12 minutes remaining, is the nature of the poverty that Jesus speaks of in Matthew 11. Because he doesn't just say people have the gospel preached unto them, does he? People have the gospel preached to them every day, and they reject it, they don't receive it, they scoff at it, they mock it, they do whatever they do. The natural man receives not. But the poor have the gospel preached unto them. It's debated by preachers and theologians whether the poverty that Jesus speaks of here has reference to financial poverty, which was very prevalent in Jesus' day, as we see all through the gospel accounts, or if it was poverty of soul to esteem yourself bankrupt in the presence of God. Personally, I see no need to draw a dichotomy between types of poverty because Jesus doesn't. He simply says the poor have the gospel preached unto them. And so what I want to do is expand this into three different types of poverty. Three types of poverty. And the first is obviously poverty in a financial sense. Just to give you a few passages, and there's a lot of scripture that I want to share. And so we might do more reading and less commenting. In the book of James chapter 2, poverty in a financial sense. God's blessing, unprecedented blessing of giving the greatest riches the world has ever known to those that society completely overlooks, completely disregards. James 2.5. Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath God hath not God chosen the poor of this world rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? Now, we might be thinking, well, he means the poor in spirit, poverty of soul, to esteem yourself lowly. And so make that argument. But contextually, on both sides of this verse, the subject under consideration is not poverty of spirit, but simply poverty. Verse 1 of James 2, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons, if there come into your assembly a man with a gold ring and a goodly apparel, and there come also a poor man in vile raiment, and ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. Are ye not then partial in yourselves, and become judges of evil thoughts? 
And then he says, Hath not God chosen the poor of this world rich in faith? What's the point in that? If two men visit us, one man, let's say he's a well-known celebrity, maybe a politician. I hate to bring pop culture into a sermon, but recently the Christian world has been losing their mind because a very well-known celebrity reality TV star rapper confessed Christ and began to record Christian music. And Christians everywhere were just so excited. And it's exciting when someone confesses that they believe in Jesus. Amen? But if I'm more excited about that rapper confessing Christ than I am a homeless man confessing Christ, something in my mind is misplaced. We love celebrities in this country. But it is just as exciting when a poor man in dirty, tattered clothing in a rundown automobile who maybe is homeless or maybe lived with friends if he can find a friend to live with. It is just as exciting when that sort of man comes into the church and confesses Christ than if one of the most famous, well-known men in this country were to walk through those doorsteps and say, I want to follow Christ with you. We are to make no distinction between the richest of the rich and the poorest of the poor. That's what James is confronting here. And he says, are you not partial and judges of evil thoughts? This is not right. You have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do they not blaspheme that worthy name by which you are called? If you have respect of persons, you commit sin. He then goes on to write much about the care of the poor. And so, yes, a part of what Jesus says has to do with financial poverty. Conversely, God choosing the poor to be rich in faith, they have true riches. Conversely, rich Laodicea in the book of Revelation chapter 3, they said they were rich and increased with goods and had need of nothing. Of all seven churches of Asia that Jesus rebukes, do you know the one that he called lukewarm, apathetic, spiritually anemic? The rich church. Of all the churches that Paul wrote epistles to, which was in the most wealthy community? Corinth, the church of the Corinthians. Which received the most rebukes? Coincidentally, no. Corinth. Wealth is a spiritual hindrance. Now, I say that not to say rich people are this and rich people are that, because if you were born in the United States of America, you're richer than about 90% of the rest of the world. We're all rich. The houses we live in are the size of the palaces of the Old Testament. Do you realize that? We think about King David's palace and we think of some giant King Arthur-style castle. But the palaces of that day, some of them were 
no larger, if not smaller, than the homes that many of us live in. We are so rich in this country. And so as a preacher, I must warn us that that wealth can blind us to our need of Christ. And it can numb us to the point that we become apathetic and lukewarm. Jesus said it was a miracle that the poor had the gospel preached unto them. Many of Jesus' followers, direct followers of Christ, were in fact quite poor. How do you know that? Well, it's evidenced by their hunger. It's noted when Jesus comes into the house of a rich man in the Gospels, isn't it? When the woman who was quite wealthy because of her lewd occupation breaks the alabaster box, when, when people would, would do things that implied wealth, we were told about it in the Gospels because it was unusual. When he goes into the house of the wealthy Zacchaeus, we studied this Wednesday night, he was a rich publican. Goes into that rich man's house and he says, look at all the things that I have, Lord. I'm going to give it all away. And Jesus commended that. It's noted because it's noteworthy. Because most people Jesus was around were poor. Now think about that for just a moment. The poor, the overlooked, the rejected, perhaps even the resented and the shunned were privileged to hear the greatest message that the word has the world has ever heard the word of god something money can't buy and that word privilege is such a politically charged term today we should never be made to apologize or regret the blessings of God. After all, they're the blessings of God. But think about the great advantage we have as Americans. That's, that's a privilege. That's a privilege. Those that were privileged with nothing else in this world in Jesus' day were privileged with the gospel. These people also experienced poverty in teaching. Matthew chapter 9, multitudes of people follow Jesus. He teaches in their synagogues. He preaches the gospel of the kingdom. He heals every sickness and every disease among the people. When he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. It's amazing that what prompted the compassion of Christ wasn't their financial status, but the fact that they were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. That has to do with their spiritual training. Think of this a minute. They had no shepherd. They were scattered sheep, which tells you they were children of God. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. They had priests. They had a chief priest, they had high priests, they had Pharisees, they had Sadducees, they had teachers, they had scribes, they had lawyers, they had wannabe pretend prophets. They had no shepherding. They were impoverished in teaching. I trust this morning that with the Word of God being explained to us every single week, you understand how wealthy you are when it comes to the knowledge of God's Word. 
If you understand God's word, you have an unsearchable treasure before you. The Sermon on the Mount juxtaposes what men taught with Jesus' intent in giving the law. You've heard it said, you've heard it said, you've heard it said, but I say unto you, these men had mistaught God's children. Matthew 23, you can write these passages down. Matthew 23, Jesus condemns the religious teachers of that day. The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' teach and uh, Moses' seat. All they, therefore, that they bid you observe, that observe and do, but do not after their works, for they say and do not. They bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne and lay them on men's shoulders, but they will themselves will not move them with one of their little fingers. The religious bondage upon the people in that day. And so these people were impoverished in teaching. Finally, the poor have the gospel preached unto them. The last type of poverty is the poverty of soul. You and I might not be poor as it relates to this world's goods because we're born in and raised in America. I've never gone to bed hungry unless I chose to. I never woke up wondering if I'm going to have food this particular day. Praise God for His providence in my life. Amen? We might not be impoverished in teaching, and I pray to God that we're not in this church. But there's a way that we all ought to be poor, and that's poor in spirit. Jesus says this in Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you ever feel yourself morally and spiritually bankrupt before God? Why do we use that term morally or spiritually bankrupt? What does the word bankrupt mean? Well, we use it as a synonym for broke. And we know that that's not the legal definition of the term bankruptcy. But it generally means to have nothing bankrupt. You lost it all. Company files for bankruptcy. What is it? It's the end of the financial status of that company unless they're big enough that the economy needs them and they get a bailout. Can I get a bailout? <laughs> If you feel yourself to be morally and spiritually bankrupt, you are poor in spirit. And so I love that the next verse in Matthew 5 is, Blessed are they that mourn over their sins, for they shall be comforted. What was our scripture reading this morning from Psalm, 50, or, yeah, Psalm 51? What did it say? The sacrifices of the Lord are a broken and contrite heart, a broken and contrite spirit. What is God pleased with in a man's life? Humility. Poverty of soul. The poor have the gospel preached unto them. To not be proud, to not be arrogant. Isaiah 57 and verse 15, and I promise we're wrapping it up. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. Think of that magnifying office. High and lofty one, inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit. Where does God live? Well, in his throne room in glory, but he also lives with them who are contrite and humble 
to revive the spirit of the humble, to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Wow. Isaiah chapter 66 is another such passage. In condemning those who were pretend worshipers and those who did sinful things in worship, Thus saith the Lord, the heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you built unto me? Where is the place of my rest? For all those things has my hand made, and all those things have been, saith the Lord. Where is the real altar of God, in other words? But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and that trembleth at my word. What really matters? Poverty of soul. The poor have the gospel preached unto them. Close with a simple reading of Mark chapter 12 and verse 37. When Jesus preached his word, notice this last phrase in verse 37 of Mark 12. The common people heard him gladly. The poor have the gospel preached unto them.